Welcome to the Global Connection, a Tel Aviv University podcast. Journey with us as we discover how TAU's academic community and friends are engaging with and helping to shape this ever-changing world. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Bright. I'm a master's student at Tel Aviv University and one of the founding members of a task force made up of international students who are trying to share the truth through social media of what we've been experiencing, hearing, and seeing in Israel since October 7th. I'm very excited to welcome in the studio here with me today, Dr. Carmel Weisman, who is a digital culture researcher from the Faculty of Humanities here at Tel Aviv University. Dr. Weisman is the publisher of the book Hebrew Online, and her work has also been published in journals such as Theory and Criticism Discourse, Context and Media, Visual Communication, and the Journal of Post-Human Studies. She's also no stranger to podcasting and has hosted a podcast on the post-human condition. Given Dr. Weisman's expertise in contemporary media and digital culture, I thought she'd be a great person to talk with about the role that social media is playing today in swaying people's opinions globally about October 7th and the Israel-Hamas war. We're seeing a ton of disinformation and misinformation online. It's frankly scary, and I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before. So Dr. Weisman, welcome. I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective on this phenomenon and the meaning behind what we're seeing on social media these days. So let's jump right into it. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Super happy to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this field and why? So um, I actually got into this field very early in Israel and in the world in general. Uh, I started surfing in 1993 as a freshman in uh, um, Hebrew University. And uh, it was only for uh, students at the time. And so I started seeing that there were there was one or two courses that were talking about this new kind of medium and giving you homework to uh, log chats online and stuff like this. So this really threw me to a different direction. I was an anthropology student and I became an anthropologist of the internet from very early on. So you've seen the involvement from, yeah. uh, you know, the very basic web to what we're seeing today, which is, you know, VR headsets, AI headsets uh, or AR headsets uh, and everything of the likes. What what are you seeing online since, you know, the Hamas massacres of October 7th? Because I know what I'm seeing is actually quite scaring and appalling from your perspective. What, what, what's going on? First of all, we're seeing everything, but it depends what kind of echo chamber you are at, Right. Uh, everything is accessible, and that's the thing, I think, that's one of the paradoxes of social media, that you have all the things there that are unfiltered. When you look at other types of news, they filter things for you according to where you are, and you, they have a perspective, they um, you know, they give you a certain narrative with it. Mm. And on social media, you have everything without narrative. If you know how to search for it, it's completely unfiltered and you have to build your own narratives. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're part of a certain echo chamber, you're still getting a certain narrative, but it's not ordered in the way that it is in mass media. You're just mm-hmm. getting a lot of information that has similar narrative and it builds up, it accumulates mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. What what I'm seeing, for example, if I take uh, Twitter or X, I should say, former Twitter, uh, as, as an example, I, I'm seeing, you know, really two polar opposites. You can have one video, for example, um, and we'll take a, a video in which uh, the IDF finds a tunnel uh, underneath, for example, Al-Shifa Hospital, and you have one echo chamber, as you said, 
that will be so indiscriminately one side and another echo chamber that is so indiscriminately another side where is the middle ground how where is the truth and where does it lie in this kind of in this era of you know information and mass information isn't that the million dollar question where is the truth mm-hmm. <laughs> and i'd ask an earlier question is there such a thing as a truth right mm-hmm. i mean we say that we live in the post truth area uh, era sorry and it means that each and every narrative has you know relatively um a similar place a similar um importance it depends who chooses to believe in that narrative and we we look we, we try to say not truth but maybe facts right mm-hmm. but still facts can be interpreted in different ways mm-hmm. and we see that mm-hmm. there is a certain fact and when nobody can uh, n- nobody could uh, challenge the fact for example that the that rocket mm-hmm. the, a rocket fell on the uh, uh, in the Shifa hospital garage mm-hmm. that's a fact mm-hmm. but now we start saying you know we start looking at the facts and we start saying no it's them it's us it's the other one it's you still have interpretations of the fact mm-hmm. and different narratives so i think that facts are no longer a factor here in trying to find the truth See, I, see, I would counter that and say, you know, the reality is, is yes, there's interpretation uh, and yes, there's different perspectives and each is entitled to their own perspective, but they're not entitled to their own fact. Um, and that being said, uh, in the Al-Shifa hospital uh, parking lot, you know, the, the, the misfired rocket situation, the fact of the matter is that was not fired by Israel, but all these news outlets, these, you know, prominent world-class news outlets ran with the story. Um, without verifying the facts and that that's you know segues into a great uh, point what and where does there you know become responsibility and accountability when you're feeding you know your respective echo chamber there's another level to this problem that even if you um, find the right interpretation a truer interpretation of the fact it still doesn't bother a lot of people who want to believe in what they want to believe they don't care mm-hmm They would uh, say they would ignore this fact. They would build it else how into their narrative. They could even say that this entire footage mm-hmm. is fake mm-hmm. because everything is possible today. So even where we're at this point where even a fact has different interpretations, and even if it's a fact with one interpretation, It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't shatter the narrative. The narrative is no longer built on facts anymore. People have a story. They fight with it, they live by it. Don't bother me mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. facts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very true. Very, very true. And I, I see it. I'm, I'm active on, uh, you know, like I said, on, on X and with what we're doing at the task force with uh, the Israel war story. It's incredible. I want to say incredible. But maybe what you're suggesting is that um, it's, it's the narrative. It doesn't matter. The fact doesn't matter anymore. Um, How does digital culture influence the spread and impact of information during conflicts, particularly, you know, this war, the Israel-Hamas war? It depends on which platform we're talking about, because we know, for example, that the algorithms of uh, the algorithms and the policy, right, of X or TikTok are completely different mm-hmm. on that respect. And for example, maybe let's talk about TikTok, which is very uh, relevant right now that we are seeing that the algorithm of TikTok somehow um, highlights 
all those uh, narratives that just are more extreme and they, they're more of the same trying to get attention and very dramatic and it doesn't matter, you know, what, what the content of the story is. And a lot of people, I don't even know if they know where Gaza or Israel is or if they know anything about what's going on here or if they believe even in, in what they're saying. But it's part of this... Um, social media culture in which we're getting attention, we're getting likes, we're getting uh, monetized mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just by, you know, crying on camera or, you know, say, oh, those poor kids or, you know, or, wow, Bin Laden, yeah. he made so much sense. Absolutely absurd. <laughs> absurd. And absurd. It, it's just, I think that, you know, it's, it's another level of the problem. It's not even, we said that may, the facts have different interpretations. Mm-hmm. Facts don't matter. Mm-hmm. And even worse, the narrative even doesn't matter. If this narrative gets you attention and gets you money, you will talk about it. Even if you don't know anything about it and you don't believe it and you see those hundreds of TikToks of people saying, well, I'm not an expert on this, but, and mm. that they will tell you mm. something completely mm. crazy, you know, it's listen to me, I don't know anything, but. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's actually incredible. Uh, you make a good point. It's incredible how, you know, since uh, this war has broken out, uh, everybody I see online is an expert in Middle Eastern affairs. Um, everybody all of a sudden is, uh, you know, a pro-Palestinian. Um, it, it's, you know, or pro-Israeli. It's, it's, it's incredible. Where were they before October 7th? It's the trend now. Yeah. And people want to hop on the trend at whichever side, I think they would choose even, you know, whichever side gets you more attention, likes, hashtags that are more successful. Mm-hmm. And this is where the platform comes in, you know, because some people argued that TikTok, because of being Chinese, is actually tweaking the algorithm this way to to prime more the hashtags that are related mm-hmm. to Free Palestine than Standard Israel, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, yeah, what what do you think about, you know, uh, government interference, specifically, uh, you know, TikTok, um, or on the flip side, for example, uh, on Instagram, a lot of, you know, pro-Israel content is being suppressed, which ultimately means that there's not a fair balance of, uh, you know, content distribution. Do you feel that these platforms must be held accountable, you know, since, you know, at the end of the day, it's shaping uh, you know, the minds of young people, um, or on, on the flip side, it's suppressing one echo chamber. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know if they're doing that. I mean, it's their trade secrets. We don't really know what they're doing and we haven't been able to make them accountable for I mean, it's anything not, it, until now. So I wouldn't trust, I wouldn't uh, hold my breath on that. But I think that, you know, both sides, um, if there are two sides here and not more, but all sides are trying to um, use different tricks in order to prime their content and suppress the other's mm-hmm, content. Mm-hmm. So you have all those advices that are circulating on social media. Like if you see a pro-Palestinian post, don't comment mm-hmm, on it mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. don't like it, just report it. Because even if you comment on it something, you know, in order to uh, say something against it, you're still increasing their traffic. So it's a different logic than the logic that we use for argumentation mm-hmm. that I want to hear your argument and I want to argue back and we're going to have a rational argument here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there's a different logic that you know I don't want to I don't want to give you this stage 
And so I would report you in order to create a, for the algorithm a reason to suppress you. And even if I have something to say, even if I know a truth that I can counter it and I can influence you as a person, we don't think about persons anymore. It's not about people. No. It's about what kind of content would be primed. So I wouldn't put the emphasis here on the platforms. I would, I would say even us, the people, are thinking through this kind of platform mm -hmm. logic mm -hmm. and we're not thinking anymore about convincing other people. Mm -hmm. Just about the mass of information, how do we shape it in order to suppress or prime something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great point. I, I was in London a couple weeks ago and I heard uh, uh, Dror Globerman speak. And what, one of his uh, points was exactly that is, in fact, don't engage. Even if you want to tell people something is misinformation or disinformation, you're better off not touching the post because the algorithm will read that it's an important post. So that, that's a very good point. Now, I, I just want to jump, bring the conversation somewhere else for a second. I, I know you're, you're an expert in this and I'd love if you can share with uh, the viewers what, what are post-humanists perspectives? I'll try to do this as short as possible. Mm -hmm. There are two main threads of uh, post-humanism and they are quite opposite to each other. This is part of the story of post-humanism that, uh, you know, in the same discourse, it doesn't have the same narrative. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's post-postmodern, so you can imagine. So um, one of them, and I think the simplest to understand, is actually uh, talking about how we can take technology and science and upgrade ourselves with it so we can be beyond human because human is not enough. Mm -hmm. Nature hasn't done us a favor. It didn't take us as far as we need. And in a world without God, it's an atheistic perspective. We have to take our fate into our own hands and with the tools that we have built to try to make something more of mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, upload our consciousness, upgrade our bodies, Every way we can use technology and, and science to enhance and uh, radical life extension, blah, blah, blah. That's one thread okay. of post-humanism. That's an exciting thread. That's, uh, that's, that sounds like we're going to be, uh, you know, microchipping ourselves and... Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's exciting, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one way. It's one, it's one, one way, way out. of evolution, for It's sure. one way out. Out, out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if it even yeah. takes us out, if we can really cure the human mm. problem this way, even it, it, if it's really a problem. Mm -hmm. And the other post-humanism, which is more referred to as uh, critical post-humanism, actually thinks that the problem that we have is that humanity is thinking of itself this way. You know, we're, we're the prime customers here. We are above nature. We should take ourselves above nature. That's exactly the problem. Mm. We should actually cycle back to being more in harmony with uh, other creatures, with nature. And for that, we actually have to decrease. Mm. Perhaps it's less technology or different sustainable technology or um, you know, taking the, per the, the human out of the center of the world and then looking at all the knowledge from a different perspective. Maybe this is how we got to this point. So it's two different um, definitions hmm. of the problem of the human and what you're supposed to do about it. And, and, and how do these two different perspectives help us understand, you know, media discourse, especially during this time, uh, you know, in a war and in a war that is you know, very convoluted. I mean, I would say that it's not so convoluted, but when you, you know, take to the platforms, as we've discussed it, it becomes very convoluted. How do these two perspectives fit in to shaping that? Uh, you know? Well, I think the social me media is already part of a post-human world by the fact that we live it as a world. 
we live in an augmented world already. You're not living anymore just your natural, geographical, physical, embodied reality. You're living this augmented reality in which our life online is not just a representation or fun or, uh, or entertainment. It's real life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's real life. It matters. You know, people get hurt there. Although they don't hurt, hurt your body, words can kill mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And things that are, happen online have actual consequences mm-hmm. and there's it's no longer um it doesn't longer make sense to separate even between the online and offline it's, it's an, an extension it's an extension to who we are yeah sure. so it's, it's very much blended so this is already a post-human feature it's like we enhanced ourselves mm-hmm. with technology and you can already see that this enhancement is not so fun right i mean a minute ago you say wow that sounds exciting but you see that when you enhance your reality it could also be overwhelming and it could have negative aspects. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not sure this, I mean, this even attests to the problem mm-hmm. of enhancing your reality. So there is this paradox that whatever we live there is real enough. You get the raw reality sometimes as the people who on the 7th of October have uh, spent time in Telegram and saw the raw footage of Hamas in real time. Mm-hmm. If you want to get the reality unfiltered, it's there for you. I unfortunately made the the mistake of, you know, looking at it all and I, I you, you can't unsee it. Exactly. So so you, ha- you have this truth, mm-hmm. raw truth, in a world that you no longer know what the truth is, then you want to stick to it, to this mm-hmm. raw footage that people are doing, not just the Hamas, even the survivors that have taken footage of themselves while running, while hiding. This is one way in which you deal with this trauma and you tell yourselves and you show others, this is real. Mm-hmm. This is happening to me right now. This is real time. This is one way for us to try to grasp at reality when you no longer have a sense of reality in your physical mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. But on the other end, at the same time, you look at those things and, and some of it is fake. And you don't know anymore what's AI made, what is fake and what is real. And this, this is our paradox. We look at it in order to get a sense of the real, to try to get at the raw, but we also don't believe what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So we live in this paradox in which it's very disorienting. It's a bit, tra- a, a bit traumatic even. Because mm-hmm. I- your access to the truth is also the place where you don't trust it. It's, it's so true. And maybe it's not true at mm-hmm. all. I think we're only we're, we're at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to where we're going um, when it comes to this mass information. What I mean is that, you know, right now we're still in what I'd like to call Web 2, you know, the the the, the known Internet. But we, we are moving into a phase of Web 3, uh, which includes the metaverse, uh, you know, even further artificial intelligence and uh, augmented reality headsets. Um, is there going to be a time in which we have just lost complete command and it becomes a free-for-all but what is your outlook because i i can foresee a world if we don't take control um of this information or the mass information deployment that you know you put on a headset and whatever you want your reality to be it will be um and, and how do we grapple with that and then you know the world in which the graphic things we saw of October 7th becoming that extension to people's everyday lives if they wish it to be. You know, I think we all, we always advance um, backwards and forward at the same time. You have those two poles in which we try to get life to be more 
uh, more virtual, we run into the virtual. Mm -hmm. We want more metaverse, more customization, more only what I want to see and not what, what everything is going outside. But at the same time, you want the raw, you want the real, and you want access to it wherever you are. So it happens at the same time. And I think that what it creates is that um, a colleague of mine is doing actually really interesting research, Nia Ehrlich. She wrote about how uh, photography no longer has a connection to reality. Mm. We used to trust photography as an evidence. This cycles back to the beginning of our conversation. Like, look, this is a photograph, this is a video of what actually happened. But we don't believe photography anymore as a true representation of reality. We know photography is, is constructed, and today photography could be indeed constructed perfectly by mm. AI and fakes and whatever. And so we don't, when we don't trust a distant reality anymore, I think that what will happen is, is that we will want to trust only what we have witnessed um, personally, only what I sensed with my senses or was told to me by someone that I trust that they have actually experienced it firsthand. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, nothing would be true anymore. And in terms of science, I think it's taking us back to the days of pre-science we know, empiricism. You know, just the things that I could sense with my own senses, I know them to be true. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we're going to have a lot of conspiracy theories and a lot of different narratives. It's going to be even harder to know what's true when people run from the truth this way and stop trusting the means in which we conceived truth until now. Mm -hmm. Because you understand that you cannot trust anything that you see from afar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... When you look at flat earthers, for example, this is part of the things they're saying, you know, I'm looking at a distance and I'm seeing that the earth is flat. Mm. This must be true. Mm -hmm. And everything else that is told to me, I haven't experienced this directly. This is what matters, right? Mm. I think this kind of thinking is going to be more prominent because it's very hard to know what's truth. And you don't know who to trust and even the trustworthy uh, institutions. Mm -hmm. fall for mm -hmm. misinformation and disinformation or bad narratives. So what are you going to do? Who are you going to trust? Mm -hmm. Just your senses. It seems like we're coming to uh, the beginning of the end when it comes to, you know, the typical mainstream media and, and some of these platforms. If that's the case, if it, I have to see it to believe it uh, or, you know, hear it directly from the top of the grapevine. It's very interesting. Um, as a digital anthropologist, what you know, what are some of the insights you could provide about the communication patterns uh, that you've observed and seen during this war, you know, and since October seventh? One of the things I've been thinking most about is about these kinds of raw footage that comes from survivors in real time, and there's been, I mean, this entire month we're seeing more and more of this footage coming out or some of the WhatsApps that are, you know, from the last minute, mm. what people were doing. And it made me think, it made me wonder, you know, I don't know if you're young, so I don't know if you take it for granted or do you realize how bizarre it is when somebody is in grave danger for their lives and they still have mm. it in their, instead of fight, flight, freeze, or in addition to fight, flight, freeze, there's also film. Mm, 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 or WhatsApp mm, document mm -hmm. or 
that there's it's there's something here that I'm starting to think about and you know what kind of theories would explain what's going on here because this is something you know in my generation it, it didn't exist we didn't have the phone as part of our bodies mm-hmm. and a way it, you you experience things mm-hmm. even extreme situations through the phone mm-hmm. and not just through your body and so we're seeing this now as as footage as proof as you know as um last minute of people who are no longer with us but i'm thinking about it as you know as an action mm, that is sure. instinctive action that is available to us and what kind of action is this and what does this mean mm. you know are we changing as people that technology has become such essential and such part of our bodies that mm. even in times when we need to hide or save ourselves we still have a space mm-hmm. for documenting and what does this mean that safety yeah. net that safety net of something that's comfortable knowing that you can have one last voice note one last video if somebody finds your phone or you know that that's very interesting the instinctive aspect to it um i, I wonder you know for example if we go back to 1939 to 1945 what that would mean if in world war ii if we had access uh you know to that cell phone that video footage the way we have it today and what the public opinion would be of World War II because what I've been seeing since October 7th is a lot of people taking or double downing on, you know, Holocaust denial. Um, And so the question is, is where would we be if this technology existed 100 years ago? And how would the, you know, the narrative, especially the anti-Israel narrative, uh, you know, where would it live if we had that kind of instinctive uh, ability or I would say the safety net to turn to? You know, I think that technology is the product of its time. And it it would be different times if there would be a different technology because at the time, photography still mattered. Mm-hmm. And the way people really understood what happened in the Holocaust is when they let in uh, journalists and they saw and reported the pictures and then people realized. Mm-hmm. But look what happens now. I mean, you had journalists, you had institutions, credible institutions, they reported, people believed, there was no question. Mm-hmm. But now that you have so many types of media and that you have that raw footage that every person is their own media outlet, so you have as many narratives, as many people as they are, mm-hmm. and you don't talk about believing anymore. I mean, you get so much footage mm-hmm. and still people don't believe it happened, mm-hmm. right? So this is something that, imagine if this happened at the Holocaust, if there were so many media at the Holocaust, mm. maybe at this, then people wouldn't have believed that it mm. was happening if this media was available. Interesting, yeah. The media is creating right. the conditions mm. for how we judge. I think, I think journalistic situations. integrity has to be questioned. And I go back to, you know, for example, BBC. Um, I go back to uh, New York Times uh, and I, I look at these these two very credible institutions and I would say Israel is still defending itself for the fact that it's defending itself. Um, and yet, you know, Hamas can put out a piece of information and it spreads like wildfire. Um, so journalistic integrity is, is a huge element. And, and so I guess that leads me into my next question is that, you know, how does the spread of fake news, because we saw it live, it happened, these institutions actually retraced to a certain extent. Um, how does this fake news uh, and misinformation affect the public opinion and policymaking in the context of this war? 
You know, one of the strategies that I think um, some outlets are using, and I would say sometimes you, you see Benjamin Netanyahu use it as well in different contexts, but this is something that you can use only when you have this rich information environment. You're saying one thing. It mm -hmm. spreads like wildfire. And then when, you know, it turns out to be not true or it was something wrong, then you apologize for it. You fix it. But it's been said anymore. It's, it, it, it's been said already. The damage it is done. It circulates. The damage is done. And sometimes it's a strategy, you know. Mm -hmm. So something that you want to believe in or is more dramatic would spread. And you won't. Nobody, it, there's so much information. Nobody gets back to the fact that, Oh, it wasn't true. I mean, it's not as interesting enough to to make it viral, the apology mm. or taking it back or the fact that, oh, sorry, it wasn't true. The fact itself, the dramatic fact itself is the nature of a meme, right? Mm. So this mm. is how you would spread. It's it's easy to spread something that is misinformed and they say, oh, oh, sorry. No, well, I was wrong. Mm. Nobody cares about the I was wrong. It's already out there. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I find it scary. I have to say, I, I, I find it tremendously scary, especially when we're living in a world, and I, and I hate to say this, I say this with the most respect, but a world filled with bigots. Uh, and I'd like to, I'd like to see change. Uh, and I'd like to see change in journalistic integrity. Um, and I'd also like to see some sort of, because I, I believe we have advanced so far in technology that to say it's not possible is would be naive, but some way where we can tokenize uh, and verify information even in real time and one of the challenges that i i know exist with mainstream media is you know these outlets want to be first to market and when you're talking about information especially in a war where it's getting deployed by the second by the minute um you lose you give up that journalistic integrity to be first to market, but it has consequences. And from a legal standpoint, I, I, I just wonder where what, what's going to happen in the next couple of years, uh, what kind of class actions are going to come out. It's going to be interesting to see. Well, you know, first of all, perhaps there's no truth, but there is authenticity. And although it's constructed authenticity, it still works. I mean, the people who are doing the best Hasbara right now are people who were not involved in it before. Mm -hmm. And they had international audiences for something else that they were mm -hmm. doing. And suddenly they started talking about this and people believed them because they were they, their favorite um, travel blogger mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. This is a real example. There's this travel blogger on YouTube that millions are listening to his explanations about Israel right now. So stuff like this might work for people. If you already trusted someone and you see him as authentic, as suddenly turning to speak about something that he cares about and happens mm. right now, and you listen to them because you trusted them on a different issue. I've never seen an, um, in an argument, argument online somebody changing their mind in an argument. That never happens. Mm. But, you know, sometimes you see those documentaries or self-documented people are saying, you know, I used to be a terrorist and now I'm the... So how does that happen? Far few in between. Just by meeting other people physically or maybe you can drop into a wormhole on YouTube when the algorithm shows you the other side all the time and you're being indoctrinated? I don't know. But I think it's the same mechanisms mm -hmm. that give us, that, that depress you that might give us hope. Mm, yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's very interesting. I, I, I believe that we have three avenues. Uh, one of the avenues is, as you said, we have 
people in our own echo chamber. Uh, we have people who, no matter what we say or what we do, there will always be a but, an if or and. Um, you know, they, they'll hate us. Uh, there, there's no convincing them. And then there's the movable middle. Uh, and that's where our energy needs to lie. There's no point in talking to, you know, the choir, into our echo chamber. There's no point in talking to a wall who's never going to listen to you. It's the movable middle. And perhaps those are extreme cases that you're talking about in which somebody goes from, like you said, a, a radical terrorist to, uh, you know, the flip side. And I think we, we saw, and excuse my arrogance, I don't, I don't remember his name, but he was the former son of a Hamas leader. Yeah. Uh, and he spoke at the UN. Um, and, and the question is, how did he go from one side to another? Uh, and so I guess it's unlocking that movable middle in, in people. What well, what do you... But just yeah. a second, I do want to add one thing that it, it has value to talk to your echo chamber as well. One of my colleagues, Terry Senft, says, you know, write to the people who agree with you because it's a kind of support. Mm. You know, it's mm. a kind of, it's creating support, letting other people know that there are more people who think like them and mm. it creates community and... It has a value as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, I guess from a convincing standpoint, yeah, um, it, it doesn't have as much value. But yeah, that makes total sense because you're you're reinforcing uh, the fact that you're you're not alone in your thought process, especially in a time where we're so outnumbered. I say we uh, are so outnumbered. I'm talking about the pro-Israel camp is, is outnumbered um, to a, in a scary disproportionate amount. Um, how do you see the role of digital discourse evolving in conflict resolution? and peace-building efforts here in the Middle East. Uh, and, and is it possible after October 7th uh, to truly find some sort of peace in the region? Uh, that's a big question. I mean, who knows? It's really, uh, we, we live in times that the history is determined by such black swan events. It's mm. really hard to look at the evolution of things and tell you, what's going to happen. But I believe that everything is possible because if something so horrific, unimaginable became possible, then something really good, unimaginably good mm. Mm. is possible too. I mean, who knows? Mm. But in terms of doing it through the web, through digital discourse, I think that the, the cards in digital discourse are at the hand, hand of algorithms today, less mm. at the hands of people and more at the hands of algorithms. So I'm not sure that with our with using our own old discursive strategies, something is going to work. I still believe in people meeting face to face. Mm. And I think that when people know an Israeli or a Jew or some of them and meet them and talk with them, this is where complexity happens. Mm. I don't see such more complex discourses surviving on social media. Mm. Um, maybe, you know, it depends on the platform. Like you know, with TikTok, you have those few minutes that you say something very dramatic, but on YouTube and on podcasts, people are listening to 30 minutes and even an mm. hour of somebody explaining something more deeply. It really depends. There's so much information out there at the end. It's, it's about your own personal agency. What do you fall into? What does the algorithm prime for you? What are you able to digest and if you're able to listen to longer content or watch longer content you're better off than those few fast videos mm. for sure mm. to me especially when it comes to this war and when it comes to such extreme conflicts 
and we saw this during COVID-19, is that it almost feels like the app has to self-implode. I say the app, whether that's TikTok or, or X, because of the disparity, because of the, the hate that you see online, um, it, it almost feels that it's a self-imploding game, that there, there's no end. The only end is, you know, for, for there either not to be an end or for, you know, the apps to shut down because it's a black hole in which the things I read, you know, are sickening. Um, I had somebody in Tel Aviv come meet me for, for supper the other night and they were distraught. And, and I, I said, well, what are you distraught about? And he said to me, I, I can't keep reading what's online. So I, I said, there's one very simple answer. Get off. You're here. You're in Tel Aviv. You're alive. Yes, the city's not what, what its normal feel is. There's, there's the aura in there that we're at war. But if you were reading all this stuff and it's going to psychologically destroy you to the point that like, like you physically look distraught, get off. Um, what is your message to people in the diaspora who are their only means is to look at the media? What is your message to, uh, you know, whether it's pro-Israel or Jews uh, or anybody who's not anti-Israel? Well, you know, at the end, where you need to be is something that every person knows in their gut, although it doesn't make sense, you know, it won't make sense. People would think that it makes sense for you to go back home because it's safer. But we know that, you know, in times of distraught, nowhere is really safer. Mm -hmm. And you just know where you need to be, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. This is something that you need to know from inside where you need to be. Like, I know I, I, I have a double citizenship. I could be somewhere else as well but I know I need to be here. And it's amazing how people adjust to things. We are, we're this very um, adaptable animal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't run to technology so fast, post-humanism and everything. We haven't explored enough the abilities of this human creature. Mm -hmm. I mean, how adaptable we are that we hear sirens every day and after five minutes we go back to the beach, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is possible and sometimes, you know, life here is even better than in living in fear in some outside place in which you feel that you may not belong. It's really, I think we will see much more Aliyah, actually, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I applied for Aliyah during this time, and they told me that it's, uh, it's surprising how much uh, or what, what interest they have now in the yeah. application. So uh, it, may, it may seem horrible from the outside, but at the end of, uh, at the, end of the day, when we're all together here, I feel safer yeah. and I think it's better. hundred percent. I, I do too. My, my roommate came back after leaving. She's not Jewish, has no connection to Israel, just here for the international law program. And uh, she said she couldn't bear sitting at home uh, watching the news. Uh, and she got a lot of flack from, uh, you know, her family. And now that she's back, she says, Phew, there's like a sigh of relief, which is an insane thing. You, you didn't hear that with the Russian-Ukraine war. You, you didn't hear that in other conflict zones. So, it's paradoxical because yeah. when you're far away, your mind is in the media and actually living this horrible reality from afar and you feel guilt that you're mm -hmm. not part of it. But when you're here, you can actually disconnect a bit from it mm -hmm. because you're already here. Yeah. And you can go to a cafe or to the beach, right? That's how I feel. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I think we could talk for another hour uh unfortunately we don't <laughs> has have, it been 30 minutes already <laughs> yeah, it seems so uh we don't have we don't have that leisure um but uh thank you so much for joining us thank you for having and, me and uh i, I where can where can our viewers uh, find you um online well i i mostly podcast and write in hebrew but absolutecarmel.com in one word 
there's some English stuff as well. Great, great, great. I appreciate the time. Thank you. 